Mormonism Live. Better than touching your own little factory. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! RFM, how are you? Gilbert, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. All right, everybody. It's good, uh, good to be with you guys tonight. We are back for another episode of Mormonism Live. RFM and Bill Real here tonight. And we're going to kind of pick up a little bit where we left off last week. I'll give it to you, RFM, here in just a second to kind of introduce us to the topic. But uh, last week, we covered Keith Erickson, uh, director of the Church History Library. And we went into uh, his open question Q&A that he did. Uh, it looked like it was uh, several youth groups from several wards and stakes. Uh, it was hosted, I think, by the Fredrickson stake. And uh, with that, RFM, what are we going to do tonight with Keith Erickson? Well, tonight what we're going to talk about is a fascinating subject of how to detect hoaxes, Bill. Yeah, yeah. There's an expert out there I hear. There's a guy. There's a guy. We all know a guy. This guy is the expert on discerning hoaxes Um and this is pretty amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. And of course, one can understand why it would be an interesting subject for Mormonism Live to look at the different methods that an expert has set forth as to how to identify hoaxes and look and see how well Mormonism itself fits that uh, outline. Now, the thing that makes it so much better is that this outline is written by none other than Keith Erickson, the director of the Church History Library himself. Yes. So yes. here we have a faithful, believing Mormon who is knows everything in the vault. He has access to it. He understands the Mormon story, and he's an expert at discerning hoaxes, but he doesn't think Mormonism is a hoax. Well, apparently not. Otherwise, I don't see why he'd still be an observant Mormon. Right. We, ha we have a person who is, at one and the same time, an expert in church history, as he ably proved last week in that fireside that we reviewed and the questions he fielded on the spot. He's an expert in church history. At the same time, he's an expert in how to identify hoaxes. In fact, I think he even teaches classes on the subject as well as blogging about it. And he may even have a book in the works, I think, coming out about how to identify hoaxes. So not only do we get to talk about Mormonism as compared to an expert's list of hoaxes, but we also get to, at one and the same time, examine this incredible phenomenon of the human mind, which is how a person can, at one and the same time, be an expert in hoaxes, and yet seem to not be able to recognize how it is that Mormonism fits those criteria, boom, 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 boom. So we've got a situation, and this is somewhat common to the human experience. I'll tell you, I know that I did this when I was uh, a member of the church. Well, I'm still a member of the church, but for decades, still going to church, right? And I have all this information that I picked up in the right side of my brain, and then I've got all this other information I picked up in the left side of my brain. And the right side is the faithful, orthodox, dominant narrative stuff. And the left side is all this other stuff that I'm learning from other places. And the one thing that you cannot do is you cannot let those sides interact in any way. You can't let the information from one side of the brain get in touch with the other side. Because if you do, there's going to be an explosion. You're going to achieve critical mass if you do that. And every now and again, you will have a time when something will get a little bit closer and threaten to jump over. And you take something you've learned over here and going to apply it to church history. And that produces, or at least did for me, very uncomfortable 
feelings. And I was recognizing something bad was going to happen. Something dreadful was going to happen. I was at risk of losing my entire worldview and religious view, my eternal worldview for crying out loud. So no, no, cannot let that happen. Push them apart. Don't let those two interact. So I can't speak for how it is that uh, Brother Erickson, the director of the Church History Library, deals with this issue. But I can almost guarantee you that there have been times, and they may be ongoing, where he has those sensations and he has to push them away. But regardless of that speculation, now we get to go through what it is that he writes about, how to identify and detect hoaxes, how to analyze hoaxes, and look at how, I think pretty clearly, we see analogs between those lists and the LDS church and its history. Yeah. And and I should know two things. One is that uh, the clip that you attached in that email, I do have, so we should be good. Um, I thought it was a hyperlink in a document and it would turn it out. You sent it as a separate file. So I have that. We'll play that later when you call on it. Uh, the other thing is I would just want to know is I actually think he's a pretty he's pretty damn good at laying out how to detect a hoax. Like if we take the fact that I disagree that Mormonism is not true. And I think Mormonism falls flat on its face for the reasons that he lays out on how to detect a hoax. I think he's actually pretty good at laying out the formula for how to know that something isn't true. When you hear a story that maybe sounds somewhat believable. Yeah. By the time we're done, if you, if the audience has the same experience I did, and I think that you did, we read this list of hoaxes and we go, how can he not see this? Right. Right, exactly. So I think this will be a lot of fun tonight. Now, do you have his blog there ready to bring up on the screen? Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. So let's um, – which one do you want to look at first? I've got all want, three articles. Okay, I just wanted to go through two, and we'll just touch on them. They're not long articles. No. And we're not going to read everything in them. But he has a blog. It's at uh, keithericson.com if you want to look these up together with other articles he's written. You have to scroll down to get to these. Uh, This one is from March 19th, 2020. It's his blog article titled How to Detect a Hoax. That might be a a useful tool if you're director of the Church History Library, one might think. And one of the only three people in the world who has access to all the goods that the LDS Church has in there. So do you have that up there? Yeah, yeah. It's right up on the screen. How to Detect a Hoax, March 19th, 2020. Okay, now I've got a version up here on my screen with my notes in it. So yeah. hopefully we can stay together on this, but let's try we're to do go it. through this bit by bit. All right. Starts off. How do you detect and avoid a hoax? Great question. It's difficult, apparently. And the better the hoax, the tougher it is to detect. Mm. There is not a single answer or trick or secret. Then he goes on to talk about a magician writing in a Cold War era manual for international spies explained that practically every popularly held opinion on how to deceive as well as how to safeguard oneself from being deceived, is wrong, in fact, as well as premise. Well, you know, if the popularly held opinions on how to not be deceived were correct, there'd probably be a lot less people being deceived, right? Right, right. So he says, the hand is not quicker than the eye. No, it's which, not. Which, by the way, your experience as a magician, oh, yeah. um, you also know that, that when you do magic tricks, that you're, that people can be fooled with sleight of hand, that you can distract people and get them to focus elsewhere. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about some basic principles as we go along. Hopefully, I'm not uh, revealing too much. I don't want to lose my membership card in the Society of American Magicians. But uh, so um, uh, actually, it's an order. I think people know that if you know anything about magic. Okay, so the hand is not quicker than the eye. And there is never a single secret for any trick. Well, some tricks there might be. But generally, no, there's not. There's different ways of performing the same effect. Rather, a trick does not fool the eye. 
but fools the brain. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I, I want to make a note here, okay? Believing is seeing. We always hear about seeing is believing. Sometimes we hear about believing is seeing. There are certain magic tricks and illusions that I have performed in my past. I don't do too much anymore uh, that actually depend upon that principle of telling someone what they're going to see because uh, to get them to see it. And uh, just a brief example, okay, is this, is that uh, I had an arm guillotine. A lot of times kids have these little finger guillotines, but I had one for a whole arm because it was a stage illusion. It works on a different principle as well. And the whole idea is that what happens is, is it happens very quickly. You have a spectator come up, they put their hand in the arm guillotine, there's a little basket attached to the bottom, and you put the uh, blade, wham, down on their hand, their wrist, cuts off and falls, the hand falls into mm. the, um, the basket. So it's a wonderful effect, right? The problem is, the problem is, is that if you don't prep the audience as to what they're going to see, they might actually see what's really happening, which is not a hand falling off into the basket, right. but it happens very quick. Okay. So, uh, the way it's done, and I'm not going to tell you all the tricks. Okay. Not tonight or ever because right. blood owes. Yeah. We don't see you lose your card. And the thing is this, is that, um, the way it's performed, the way, the way I perform it is that I tell the audience three times in a humorous fashion, hopefully what it is that they're going to see that when I push the blade down, they will visibly see the hand fall off, uh, be cut off and fall into the basket. And I repeat that three times so that that's what they know they're going to see. So therefore, when I do it, I've taken care of the fact that they're not going to see how it really works and ensured the fact that they're going to see how I'm telling them it works. So that's just an example. Okay. A trick does not fool the eye, but fools the brain believing is seeing. Um, thus, the article goes on. Thus, the antidote involves careful observation, thinking, and analysis. We must become aware of human limitations and perpetrator methods, and we must employ thoughtful counter strategies and helpful tools. This guy sounds like he's he's kind of bulletproof against hoaxes, doesn't he? Yeah, he's he's got this whole process down. You can't fool this guy. No, and actually, I would really like to hear him give a presentation at some point and compare Mormonism and church history with detecting a hoax and explain how it is that Mormonism is not a hoax. That would be an interesting presentation. Yeah. I'd like to hear that. Awareness of your own human limitations. A man's got to know his limitations. Perpetrators exploit the weaknesses of human thinking and observation. You bet they do. First, there are social limitations. Now, he starts talking about some things. We seem to have an innate sense of trust. We assume that what we experience is true. The existence of society is predicated on our trust, listen carefully, that parents are kind, leaders are just, and neighbors are friendly. So yeah, a whole lot of uh, Mormonism is predicated upon the idea that leaders are not only just, but that they're honest and that they're telling us the truth, right? And, and let's just recognize, right? So parents are kind. Um, some of them are, some of them aren't. Leaders are just, some are, and some aren't. And most people, when they have power and authority, tend to, and I think Joseph Smith nailed this one, they tend to sometimes act unrighteously and tend to get a little arrogant with the power that they've got. Um, uh, neighbors are friendly. Yeah, again, some of them, and some of them aren't. Try try growing a tree that just goes over the, the fence of your neighbor just a little bit and see how nice he is. Right. And what is it that uh, the neighbors always say when the police are out there arresting somebody in the neighborhood who's had like women chained up in his basement, torturing them to death over a period of years? Yeah. Charles Ramsey. Uh, you know, I ate ribs with that dude. Uh, there's yeah. the idea. He always seems like the nicest guy. That's yeah. what they always say. Yeah. I had no clue that there were women hidden in his basement. 
Um, let's see. Uh, where am I? Because it is not humanly possible or feasible to verify yep. everything, our minds create shortcuts for evaluating the world around us. Shortcuts. That's the dominant narrative. We trust it if it comes with experts and endorsements. If it contains scientific formulas or graphs or photos of scientists. If we feel pleasant emotions. Yeah. My jaw kind of dropped when he got to the end part of this, that we trust if we feel pleasant emotions because- it's, That's the deal. That's the tiebreaker, right? Like if the information is skewed against the church, emotions is how we tell. And by the way, you've pointed out there's, there's some things that we'll get into here in the, these kinds of mechanisms, but here's the first one, which is elevation emotion. Jonathan Haidt, the social scientist, uh, is the first guy to kind of talk about this in depth. We humans, if we feel- what's called elevation emotion. And by the way, the way the scientists define it outside of Mormonism is a burning in the bosom. That's their definition. It's a warm feeling in the chest. They really say that? They do. They say they don't say burning in the bosom, but they say a warm feeling in the chest. Okay. Close same to forget same idea. Yeah. yeah. And so this idea that when we feel warm feelings around an experience, if I can convince you that something positive has happened and you feel really good about it, you are much more likely to believe that that thing was true even if it's bullcrap. And there've been studies done where they've done false things, but surrounded those false things with positive uh, upliftment and the people are more likely to believe those things are true. Right. And I think the entire uh, epistemology of Mormonism is based around this idea of feeling pleasant feelings. It starts with the Book of Mormon and reading it and praying about it. And it goes on with pretty much every other aspect in Mormonism. If we feel a pleasant emotion, then we are told by the leaders whom we are you know, trained to trust by society that that means that that's the Holy Ghost bearing witness to us of the truth of the church. And I it's the trump card too, by the way, when, when uh, you go to a member of the church and you lay out all the data and say, this doesn't add up, they just say, I don't know, I prayed about it and I felt good about it. And so I'm going to continue in faith. Right. And the interesting thing here is that here's an expert on hoaxes who is saying that this is something, what is it? Uh, our minds create shortcuts for evaluating the world around us. We trust if we feel pleasant emotions. I yeah. cut out all the other stuff in between. Yeah, yeah. We trust it if we feel pleasant emotions. And I that made me think of Henry J. Eyring, the son of Henry uh, R. Eyring. I can't remember his middle initial now. There's the older and the younger. Yeah. Uh, and the I, older I think the dad's Henry J. Henry J. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the son's name is. Anyway, no, Henry the, B. The dad's Henry B. and the son's Henry J. I think you nailed it. Okay, I just forgot the beat. Okay, anyway. It was um, hidden amongst the tears. <laughs> Do you remember? We did a, uh, I think it was a two-part episode. You and I did called The Crying Game, where we dissected a talk given by Henry J. Eyring, the yeah. younger, the president of um, Rick's College, except it's yeah. BYU-Idaho now, right? Examining the Book of Abraham. Yes, and it came to this discussion about the Book of Abraham. This is the clip that we're going to play here. I think it's just an audio clip, but that's fine. You'll get the the gist of it. But he's talking about the book of Abraham and he's talking to the students and he's saying, you know, I had a guy at work who was telling me, did you know that the book of Abraham has been proven false by Egyptologists? And it really troubled him. Yeah. It troubled him so much that he went and calls his dad, the general authority, because he knows I got a secret weapon and call my dad. He'll give me yeah. the answer on it. If, if my dad was a general authority, that's where I would have gone in my faith crisis too. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? He calls right. him a secret weapon. I'm not going to try and, uh, give away the punchline here. If you can just play the tape, we can find out what it is that Henry uh, B. Iring told Henry J. Iring in response. It should show up here in just a brief second. Fingers crossed here. My testimony of the church hasn't faltered since mother first told me that it is true 
Yet I have not been immune to challenges and have at times struggled to defend my faith. A particularly unsettling challenge came when I was a young law clerk. A supervisor who knew of my church membership told me that new research had invalidated the Book of Mormon, the, excuse me, the Book of Abraham. Well, that too. I was shaken by that accusation, but I felt confident in a secret weapon. My father had recently been called as a general authority, and I was sure that he would have arguments to counter those I faced at work. It was in such a state of confidence that I called my father on the phone. I described my situation and eagerly awaited his answer. I was sure that he would refute the accusations about the book of Abraham, but his answer surprised me. He simply asked, have you read the book of Abraham? Yes, I replied. He asked, how did you feel? How do you feel when you read it? Good, I admitted. What else do you need to know? He asked. There it is. What else do you need to know? You feel good. You have a pleasant feeling when you read the book of Abraham. What else do you need to know? And what we're finding out is that the director of the church history library is identifying in his own personal blog that this is actually one of the ways of hoaxing people. Does it seem strange that he puts this one as the last among these things? Like he sticks it at the end to kind of separate it from the qualifier at the beginning. And, and he's putting some distance there. And I just wonder if he did that intentionally or not. Cause he has to, he has to know that when he says, if we feel pleasant emotions, he is speaking to the very way that has been laid out for all of us to know the truth of Mormonism by the power of the Holy ghost. You may know the truth of all things. Yeah. Um, and once again, I don't know how firmly he has these two bodies of knowledge separated in his mind, but it's hard to imagine a member of the church writing that and not recognizing its applicability to Mormonism. But it's possible. The human mind has an almost infinite degree of ability to deceive itself. Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely one way to kind of trick people is if people feel good. By the way, another thing too, this idea, and we'll get into this here in a moment where he talks about confirmation bias, but the idea that if you feel good about something, it's much harder to let go of that belief too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And he's going to talk about this, right? Yep. Um, uh, We also possess mental limitations, uh, some of us more than others. We are more likely to remember things that have a memorable story or pattern, i.e. the dominant narrative. Our minds tend to imbue patterns with intention and meaning, and we can end up seeing patterns or messages in randomness. And there he gives a technical term for it, which I'd probably butcher, pareidolia. Seeing patterns or messages in randomness. That's like randomness. It's like looking up at the sky and seeing patterns or faces in the clouds, right? It's random, but we we tend to create patterns or messages out of them. That's what the human mind does. It doesn't mean there's actually a face up there. It's just how our mind is trained to interpret it. And when he says that, we end up seeing patterns or messages in randomness. I thought that is a very good description of much of Mormon apologetics as it relates to the book of Abraham, hashtag John Gee. And that's what it does. It takes these random things and sees a pattern in it because it's enforcing a pattern on it. We're not going to go into detail about that. Hopefully people who've listened to us talk about the book of Abraham ad infinitum will understand what it is I'm talking about and the book of Mormon apologetics for the book of Mormon too. There's this randomness, but we're going to see pattern. Our mind's going to impose pattern on it to show that it is something maybe different than what it actually is. Yeah. And that's the, that's the difficulty is parallelomania. Yeah, it's, it's like pareidolia, but it's parallelomania, right? Uh, and that's that's the the difficulty that we have to encounter. We have to first be aware of our uh, tendency to see patterns where patterns don't exist, and we have to try and account for that because obviously there are patterns that do exist, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to come up with some kind of way of trying to recognize or evaluate whether what we're seeing is a pattern that really exists or whether it's a pattern that we're just imposing 
on something. And the funny thing about this, Bill, the funny thing about this is that the more intelligent a person is, or the more knowledgeable they are, the more the vaster body of knowledge that they have in their brain to work with as data points, the more likely they are to see patterns that are not there. Yeah. And, and we're evolutionarily programmed to see patterns. So one of the things we needed to do when we when we lived as a small tribe 200,000 years ago in the jungle is that if there was a dangerous animal, if a noise was made, uh, if if there's some eyes in the distance, it was in our benefit to move to the assumption that we're seeing the thing we're seeing rather than we are mistaken. You can be mistaken a hundred times and it's not going to hurt you. Right. Uh, in terms in terms of not in terms of seeing something that's not there. But the moment you don't see something and it is there, you've become somebody's lunch. And so we are evolutionary programmed to see those kinds of things. Um, It's also should be noted too, that uh, again, human beings as homo sapiens, I think we've been around about 200,000 years. And one of the things we humans did was we invented language. Sometimes it feels like 300,000. It it does sometimes seem like more. Um, we invented language. And so we we have conveyed the way that knowledge is passed on from generation to generation is generally has been throughout mankind's history up until recent modern history through story. So by, by telling myths, by telling stories around the fire, by getting people together and conversating about the tale of our ancestors, that's how information has been conveyed. And so it makes sense that we would also begin to see patterns in information because that's something we've been doing all along. Um, we are more likely to remember things that have a memorable story or a pattern. So we're much more like we're just evolutionary programmed to remember things um, when there's a story to go along with it. That's something that's just, again, hundreds of thousands of years old. And this is something actually where Mormonism excels in this way, because Mormonism, as has been noted by other people, including Daniel C. Peterson, Mormonism doesn't really have theology in the way that uh, Catholicism or uh, mainline Protestant churches have developed theology. Um, What we do is we tell stories. Yeah, that's that's the way that we convey the message in Mormonism. And think about it, the the sacred grove, um, the 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 three. Uh, uh, Nephites. We have uh, obviously the story in the Book of Ab- or Book of Mormon. We have um, the story about how Joseph Smith got the Book of Abraham. We've got uh, Peter, James, and John. We've got Oliver Cowdery and uh, Oliver Cowdery and Joseph getting the Aaronic priesthood from John the Baptist. Um, you've got the Transfiguration with Brigham Young. You've got uh, Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner picking up all of the documentation from the Book of Commandments. Everything in Mormonism is conveyed through a story. Yes, and it's very effective. Uh, in the way it does it, but it's also something that our minds tend to go to naturally. And, so and Keith gonna- Erickson is acknowledging we might find false things being conveyed with these ways that tend to push us or nudge us towards believing. Yes, and oversimplify things. Yeah. Exactly. Very good. Now I'm going to need your help with this next part because he's going to use a lot of um, terminology that has to do with psychological phenomena that everybody has basically. Yeah. Do you mind if I read it? uh, No, go ahead, please. Set it up if you want. I'm just just asking if I can read it. I can stop where I want to. You can read it, Bill. Perfect. Our minds prefer information that is easier to process, whether because of high contrast, rhyming, or simplicity. Again, think of the nursery rhymes you learned as a kid and how easy it was to remember those things. But if a story didn't have those kinds of rhymes to it, uh, or if we didn't assign an an acronym to the first letter of each sentence, um, every, every good cow eats grass, I think, is one of them in music. 
so this idea of rhyming or simplicity, we remember things that align with what we already believe, confirmation bias. So confirmation bias, we're always going to seek information that reinforces our current beliefs specifically with beliefs that are important to us and are central to our identity. And we're going to ignore information that runs counter to our existed, uh, existing beliefs. He's calling this motivated reasoning. I've also heard it termed um, belief persistence is the process between both of these where uh, even if there is negative information about the things I believe, I'm going to continue believing my belief anyway. And there's the backfire effect. And what the backfire effect tells us is that the counter information, even if it's true, has to reach a certain threshold. And if it doesn't reach that threshold, and that threshold is significant, you have to be bombarded with data that contradicts your pre-existing false belief to change your mind. If it goes below that threshold, something crazy happens. You even believe your belief, your false belief, even stronger. So there's that. That's the backfire effect, right? Backfire effect, yep. Now, of course, none of these things mean that Mormonism isn't true at all. But he's talking about the way that our minds work, which makes people susceptible to believing hoaxes. And he's aware of this. And I think that everybody needs to be aware, whatever it is we believe already, that we tend to remember things that align with what we already believe. And we ignore information that runs counter to our existing beliefs. That fact about the human mind makes people very susceptible to being hoaxed. Yeah. And Dan Hardy here is making a mention that we don't have theology and he's got the, you know, the face with the tears. And I think he's just trying to make a joke. Like we do have theology. That's, that's a silly thing to say. And I think you're not right. The way I'm, not the way I'm talking about. No, it. right. We don't have this, this in-depth laid out way in which everything happened. We have a basic storyline, but we don't have an explanation, for instance, for how the atonement works, right? We don't know, um, which stories exactly are literal and which ones aren't. We're making space for those. Our theology tends to stay at a, stay at a very surface level. Um, we have priesthood, but we don't know exactly what, well, how that works or what it does. Um, I want to go on here. Increased familiarity uh, with things gives us the illusion of validity. He calls this the illusory truth effect. This essentially works in the way that the more times we are presented with a false statement or misinformation, the more likely we're to incorporate that into our knowledge base and continue to hold on to it as a as a true thing. And so if if you're ever around people who are trying to manipulate you into believing something, they will constantly repeat themselves and repeat the facts that they're trying to say, repeat the data points that they're pointing to. And the more you hear it, the more likely you're to believe it, which also is in part how Boyd K. Packer saw us building our testimonies by the testimony is gained in the bearing of it. The more you say you believe something, the more likely you're to fall into the actual false idea of believing the thing that you keep repeating to yourself. Right. This is testimony meeting. Um, and I want to be clear, number one, that I, I'm not saying that because I think testimony meeting is designed to get everybody together to repeat the same things. Okay, that much is true. Well, but I think it's. I am putting up five fingers, right? Sure. My testimony glove. I, I left it outside. Right. The testimony Those five glove. things. Yeah. Right. But it is designed to do that. But I don't think it's designed to do that in order to uh, make 
give it the illusion of validity. But I think that's the effect that it has, and that's being identified here. It's also what happens with correlation in the church. The fact that people are so bored at church is because they hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. And yet that's the increased familiarity with things. I think there's a difference between being bored at church and not believing something because it's being repeated over and over where it's gaining that illusion of validity. By the way, I did want to come back to, um, was it, I'm sorry, was it Dan Hardy? Dan Hardy. Okay. Uh, I didn't see the comment mainly because I'm on this other page and I've only got one screen, but no, I didn't mean to be too dismissive of him. When I'm talking about theology, I'm talking about like Thomas Aquinas and the classic church fathers who were philosophers and are trying to work out what kind of a being God is through philosophical terms and all this stuff. So that's what I mean when I say that the LDS church does not do uh, philosophy, rather it tells stories. Theology, when I say that, yeah. theology, thanks. And when I do that, all I'm doing is quoting from Daniel C. Peterson, who had said the same thing. And I think he thought it was a good thing. And I think in some ways it is because it's helpful to people to see those stories and to remember things. Yeah, Go in, ahead. Fact, no, in fact, right, we, we really don't have theologists, right? We don't, you no. know, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie attempted to kind of do a little bit of that. No. But essentially, we've all kind of learned yes. to stay away from it. No, I get it. Not the real thing. But we've we've all kind of been taught that if the authorities aren't doing it, we don't have a right to step on that ground. And so even in the church, the best you get is like a Terrell Givens um, or maybe a Patrick Mason. And they're much more philosophers than they are theologists. Right. And so, but, and by the way, Mormons are um, typically scared away from philosophy. It's something that's not supposed to be gone into. And that's mainly from the idea of the philosophies of men mingled with scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Those are things we're supposed to stay away from. So I think we come by our shunning of philosophy, honestly, Yeah, at least. But I just wanted to respond to that, to, to Dan Hardy, to try and, because uh, I thought maybe I was being dismissive. Yeah, no problem. And then the last little sentence here, once we form inaccurate beliefs, they become uh he says, it says here heard, but it's got to be hard, hard it to is. eradicate. Even after clear correction, the continuing influence effect, which also, again, could be the backfire effect or belief persistence. And, and you mentioned that, and that's fascinating. Once we form inaccurate beliefs, they become hard to eradicate even after clear correction. We'll talk about an example of this later on in, in LDS history. Yeah. But it's fascinating. So in other words, if you come to something with an open mind and you're not committed one way or another, and you hear a certain piece of evidence, and that's going to lead you toward one side. But if you've already committed yourself to a belief in the other side, this same piece of evidence is not going to convince you the way it would have otherwise, because now you formed an inaccurate belief and it becomes hard to eradicate even after clear correction. And then he gives the coup de grace to this with the final line. Yeah, sometimes we cannot see our own incompetence. And this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this is one of my favorite psychological mechanisms that's out there. If you can just think for a moment, if you've ever watched um, any of these talent shows on reality television, and I'm I'm going blank now trying to think of one, but um, America's, got got, America's Got Talent, yeah. And then there's some where they're singing and, they, and you know, they're trying to do sing-offs. And um, – there, there's the one where they did the X's. They would buzz them off if, if they if they couldn't qualify. And essentially, people got up on stage and they would sing and they would think they were good. They were all ready to impress the audience. Their mom had told them they were good. Their sister had told them they were good. They thought they sounded good in the shower. They get up on stage, they sing, and they bomb. And they get essentially booed off stage and the judges uh, – you know, give them the the big uh, X and they have to walk off stage. And then the guy meets them backstage to interview them. And they're going like, I never saw this coming. I didn't, I never saw, I, I thought I was really good at singing. And the reality is you don't know what you don't know. 
And anybody with a limited amount of knowledge base on a subject will often overreach on their expertise and they don't tend to catch how inept they actually are at the topic at hand until they learn more and gain more information and really understand the way the experts understand. And then they see their limitations. Right. It's a difficult, I mean, we, we have an idea of what we know. We tend to know what we know, but it's a different thing to know what we don't know. That's much more difficult. How do you know something that you don't know? Yeah. And I think that gets into this idea. And a good example in Mormonism, you and I have both heard this argument, and you and I have both believed this argument. But when we first learned that masonry and the temples were really similar, we were given the shitty apologetic that it goes all the way back to the Temple of Solomon, and that's where the masons learned how to build. Uh, you know, the masons were building Solomon's temple, and that's where they learned these temple rites that we got in the endowment. And it was a, a corrupted form of the endowment, but then Joseph restored it. And the reality is, once you understand Masonic history, that explanation falls flat on its face. But so long as you don't know that history, that's an apologetic answer that feels really good and you're able to hold it as true and you think it's real and it really isn't. Very, very good point. By the way, when you talk about singing, I remember my Aunt Charlie when I was a kid, my uh, sisters, my mother's sister used to ask me on a regular basis. She'd say, what did you do with all that money? And I'd say, what money? And she'd say, the money your mama gave you for singing lessons. (laughs) Oh, Enough shame will cause us all to see ourselves in a more true light sometimes, huh? It's amazing. Amazing that I can sing it all anymore. And you turned to dance. I did. I did. I never danced for her, though. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Are are, are we ready to go? Where awareness of perpetrator methods? You got it. Oh, my gosh. Researchers have identified several common principles employed by perpetrators in a variety of schemes. They can distract you into focusing on something that grabs your interest so that you miss everything else. And he says, common in magic tricks. Mm, It's nice to think that he thinks that because that's really not how most magic tricks work. But as long as people are thinking that magic tricks work in a way that they don't work, I'm gold. Yeah. And even here, like distraction, when, when, uh, Elder Bednar goes, I'm going to change the question. In a way, he's doing a little bit of a distraction. Like, here's this question. I don't want to answer it. That's going to paint me into a corner. Let me go to something else and and entertain you and excite you and teach you on this other thing. Um, There are distractions that occur in Mormonism. Whenever you ask a question, we're often not allowed to really sit and have that discussion about that question. Instead, some other answers given and we're essentially asked to move on. Um, We're constantly being told that our brain can't stay in the space where the problems occur. We're constantly being pointed to some other place. Very good. And by the way, for anybody who doesn't know the reference that Bill was using about Elder Bednar, it's when he was asked a question at some kind of a, a regional meeting or something. Where I Are there any homosexuals in the church? Yeah. No, and he says, no, the, no the question that's what I thought first too. Okay. I think the question was, what can we in the church do to better help uh, our homosexual brothers and sisters feel yeah. more welcome? And let me change the question. There are no homosexuals in the church. Boom. That yeah. was it. Yes. Right. Distraction. Good memory. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> okay. Now he gets really, really close to home where he says the next thing. They, now he's talking about what? Perpetrators of hoaxes. By yeah. the way, I figured out who uh, Keith Erickson who his favorite apostle is. Do you know who that, I know you know who this is because we talked about it before. Oh, I don't remember our conversation. Who Who is his favorite general authority? I think it must favorite be Dallin, Dallin H. 
Hoax. Hoax. Dallin Hoax. <laughs> Dallin Hoax. <laughs> I mean, it's right there in the name. Dallin H. Oh. Oaks. Hoax. I mean, if I had a middle initial H and a last name Oaks, I probably wouldn't use my middle initial. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yeah. <laughs> Those I think would be the ones we avoid. <laughs> there's there's Elder Oaks just giving a yes to Elder Ballard. Yes. Indeed. That's not something else. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but now look, listen to this. Does this apply to Mormonism? They, these perpetrators count on social compliance or the way that most people are trained by society not to question authority. Hmm. Let me see here if I have. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. So there, you you aren't allowed to ask the hard questions. You need to obey and get in line. That's Mormonism. Wow. And, you know, do we have any authorities in the LDS church? People who identify themselves as authorities. I'm not sure we have that many. Do we? People who identify themselves as authorities. Um, yes. Maybe from time to time, a bishop or a stake president. And then you're really moving into the 70 and the Quorum of the 12 and the first presidency. Yes. And the first two are local authorities. Who get trumped And the last by. three are general authorities. Right. <laughs> and the local authorities only get to meddle and uh, do things, and but only at a local level. And they can't really interrupt the church on a, mag, uh, on a, on a uh, collective scale. Right. But everybody from a bishop up is an authority in the LDS church. Then he yeah. goes on. The herd principle describes the way that most people follow everyone around them. Okay. That's kind of similar. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, can you tell us about the dishonesty principle? It says here, the dishonesty principle expects that each person has a little larceny on the inside. People may be willing to rationalize the purchase stolen of stolen goods if they are a good deal. And, I, oh yeah, no, I just want to say, and by the way, people may also be willing to lie a little if they feel it's necessary to save people's souls. And let's be, we were talking about this the other day on an episode that we did, um, I don't know, a month ago or so, where you and I now, looking back, realize that we were willing to, to the general public, when we went across the street to knock on the door to the neighbor, um, when we went to church on Sunday and dressed nice and told our kids to smile and held our wife's hand, we, to some degree, recognize now that we were being deceptive and dishonest and painting the blessings of Mormonism greater and grander than they actually were. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's all about appearances in the LDS church because we have to give the appearance that everything is wonderful, that we're happy, happy, happy doing the Mormon thing. Even though on the inside, I can only speak for myself, I was miserable, but I knew that I had to present as happy because I'm told that the LDS church makes you happy. If you live the teachings, I'm living the teachings. I'm not feeling happy, but I'll present as happy. So everybody else thinks that I'm happy and therefore I must be following the teachings. Right. Yeah, that's it. And, and that's the whole trick because if we can convince our neighbors that life is better inside Mormonism than wherever they're at, then maybe they'll join the church. Yeah. Now I, I know that we're already at 608 and there's, I want to get to the Arthur Conan Doyle part Please. and leave time for questions. Uh, but um, uh, I think everybody should read this uh, in its entirety. They go down a little bit further where it says perpetrators of hoaxes and scams might present fake experts and anonymous sources. Uh, let's see here. What's uh, let's just say a couple of lines down perpetrators of hoaxes and scams might present fake experts and anonymous sources. Uh, I'm just trying to find mm, just a here like, we go. two lines down from where we yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Three lines. Yeah. yeah. So you got that? Yep. And 
uh, okay, Charles Antone and Dr. Mitchell were not fake experts. They were real experts, but it seems like they may have been misrepresented in what it was that they were giving their expert opinion on and what that expert opinion was. And so you, you see fake experts being used in a fake way, um, at least allegedly. I think there's a lot of evidence to support that, mainly because uh Charles Anton is, is alleged to have told Martin Harris about the uh, the, the engravings, the um, the characters and the interpretation yeah. that Joseph Smith provided him to take to him for examination authentication. The story from the church is that uh, Charles Anton said that they were accurate Egyptian characters and that the translation that Joseph Smith had made of some of them was also accurate. And he couldn't have done that because Egyptian was not to the point where anybody in the world could have done that in 1828 when it's alleged to have happened. And that's why I say the evidence is pretty good that it's probably not what Charles Anton said. And so therefore, I'm suggesting that this is an expert who's being held up giving an opinion about something that probably is not correct. Yeah, and notice this one right below it. Deny the conclusiveness of evidence. We can't be sure. How many times in Mormonism have you seen the critical viewpoint by far outweighs the faithful viewpoint? It seems like the um, mound of evidence in favor of the critic is so superior to the faithful perspective. And yet what the apologists do is say, but what if, like, maybe, like, maybe, maybe there's room for this. Maybe that could have happened. Maybe we, you know, we can't be sure. And so that's also another way that we get people to continue in belief. When in reality, if you're going to be rational, you have to choose the uh, belief that requires the least amount of conjecture and allowances. And that is almost every time on the critic's side. In my 43 years in the LDS church, we have gone in the apologist circles from believing that we could prove Mormonism true, prove the Book of Mormon true, prove the Book of Abraham true, to the point where now uh, the apologists are conceding they can't prove anything true. And all they're trying to do is uh, say, we can't be sure that it's yeah. Yeah. And then the next one here, seek only for evidence that supports their position, cherry picking. We've already had the church say it's not their job to present the critic's position. They're only going to present the faithful position. And when you go on to Fair Mormon and you read the apologetics, I've I've been on that guy, that team before. I've been behind the scenes where these guys are answering questions. They are clear. It doesn't matter how strong the critic's view is. You present the best apologetics, no matter how weak they are, and you pretend that they hold up. That's cherry picking. Yes. Um, there's so much we could say about so much of this. If we follow that line that you're in, and if you want to say anything about anything else, I have some notes, but I'm just going to bypass them now. Let me just yeah. say one last one and yeah, I'll be done. The last one they mentioned in that paragraph is change the requirements or moving the goalpost. That's where I'm going. Yes. Okay. Go, well, then I'll let you, I'll let you unfold that one. Well, okay. Changing the requirements. That's what I see every day going on in Mormonism. Uh, translation. Hello. The definition of the word translation, that's totally changing the requirements. When Joseph Smith used it, he's translating from one language to English. Now, when we find out that he was doing anything but translating from this language to English, and we know he wasn't, suddenly now the word translation is different than what he said it was. It's, yeah. it, it doesn't mean translating from one language to another. Now it no. means something uh, ephemeral, and it could yeah. be a catch-all, and translation can be a word that is so vast and uh, ambiguous that it can account for what it is that Joseph Smith did or more accurately what Joseph Smith did not do. 
Yeah. In one of the other articles that was written, he says that hoaxes are really flexible. Good hoaxes that last a long time are really flexible. If something's true, it will just stay true. If, you know, if Abraham Lincoln was born in whatever year he was, 100 years later, we can still say that data point is true. And if it's blatantly false and it doesn't have any flexibility to it, we'll discover it's untrue. Hoaxes play in that middle ground where they have flexibility to change and shift and still be believable. Look at Mormonism. Garments have changed. Temple ordinances have changed. Meeting schedules have changed. Um, what tithing has been paid on has changed. Whether the um, uh, whether the interpreters were used or whether the uh, seer stone was used has changed. Whether the book of Abraham was a literal translation or whether it was a catalyst theory has changed. Every single thing in Mormonism has changed. And these guys look you square in the eyes and pretend like it's been the most consistent thing since, you know, 1820. Jesus Christ changing yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. I think that's in the Bible. I yeah, think that's yeah. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. He he is a changing person, which obviously, <laughs> obviously not, right? Like that's the whole idea in a hoax is you continue to believe it's true even as it continually redefines itself over and over and over again because it was set up in such a way as to allow that flexibility. Before we get to the fairies, do you ha- are you up there under thoughtful counter strategies? Yep, we've got it up. I just want to say a couple of things, okay? To avoid being tricked by a hoax, you have to use more than common sense. Skip a line. You cannot simply trust websites that end in .org. <laughs> uh, it's almost, I almost wondered, RFM, if this guy actually was against the church and he pretends to be a believer and then writes material as a way to be humorous and funny as he points out the absolute falseness of Mormonism. Um, it is tempting to interpret it that way because it seems so obvious to us. Yeah. And I, I, I'm guessing it's probably not the case. <laughs> and I just don't think he sees it. I don't think he sees it. Maybe he'll watch this uh, this show and maybe he will see it. And by the way, that name changed too, right? LDS.org, churchofjesuschrist.org. Yeah. The hoax is always changing. It doesn't stay the same. But if you have Jesus Christ before the .org, can it really be false? Right. No, I guess not. <laughs> and then it goes down to this next paragraph. What's this line here? Um, oh, uh, instead of down a web page to review its official looking logo, <laughs> we have a new logo in the church. Okay. Instead of down a web page, uh, and I think he means instead of going down or scrolling down a web page to review its official looking logo or domain name, you should learn to leave the page and look around it on the internet. Well, that makes mm-hmm. sense. But this is what the church explicitly tells its members not to do. You're not supposed to look on the internet and find out what other people are saying Mormonism, saying about Mormonism. You're only supposed to go to the official sources. sources. Yeah, this guy is right here pointing out something that Mormonism blatantly does. It criticizes any information that's outside of its official channels, and, and it tells you to trust only it. And he's telling you, don't do that. Don't trust that. Go look at other searches. Go read all the information. And RFM, what happens when 100 believing members go and read the depths of all the information and begin to trust information in other places? I'm almost sure that about 97 of them end up outside the church. Absolutely, they, they do. And three of them, the other three are just uh, going to take them a little bit longer. Yeah, they become the director of the church history library. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then they, they they write the articles about how to analyze the hoax. Yeah. And that's the second one that he goes to is how to analyze a hoax. There's just a couple things in here. Okay. 
I mean, it's just so tempting. Everything's low hanging fruit in these two articles. Go and read them yourself and see if you don't agree. The elements, the elements of a hoax, right? Where he says uh, the perpetrator. Do you have that? Number one, the perpetrator. Yeah, I've got the I've got the pie chart up there. Perpetrators of hoaxes frequently possess charisma. Huh. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound like something that Joseph Smith had none of. No, no, not at all. He totally he was very charismatic. And a talks folk about magic treasure digger. Yeah, they may be motivated by fame, money, or power. Well, yeah, the big three, of course. And he tried all of those, right? Like he, there were times where he was seeking out the fame. There's times where he tried to sell the copyright of the Book of Mormon, tried other ways to get money. It didn't turn to work that well. And then we all know the kind of power that LDS leaders wield. Absolutely. So uh, he's basically giving a general thumbnail description of Joseph Smith here. And then he talks about the target constituency. So who is it who's going to be taken in by these hoaxes that are being perpetrated by the perpetrator? By the way, one of his articles makes the point that the the easiest state in the union where frauds can be perpetuated, guess which state it is? Mississippi? No, it's Utah. Utah? Utah is where the most frauds occur because people fall for them so easily in this beautiful state. There's probably a reason for that. I wonder what that might be. I don't know. Half the mem- half the people here aren't Mormons, so maybe it's the non-members. Uh, that's probably what it is, or it's the elevation. Yeah. that's <laughs> If you get that, you get that. Okay, so the target constituency. Yeah. Victims of hoaxes often possess reasons for not disbelieving. Notice how he puts it. Not reasons for believing, but reasons for not disbelieving. disbelieving. Yeah. They are proud, indifferent, ignorant, or superstitious. I don't think anybody's talked about the early converts to Mormonism as superstitious. Uh, Martin Harris. Hmm. Yeah, the guy who saw a deer and thought it was Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not making this up. No, a deer. You're right. This is a real story. This is a real story. Yeah, it's a deer a Jesus deer. story. He saw a deer, and it didn't change or anything, but he just he sees a deer, and in his mind, he thinks, this is Jesus appearing. In the form of a deer, yeah. or you've got Joseph Smith and uh, whoever it was who was on the wagon with him, and they're they're going down either between Harmony and uh, wherever Fayette or Palmyra, right on the road, and here comes this this guy just walking down the road. With his knapsack behind him, right? Yeah, on a little stick or something. It's like a hobo, just a you hobo. Know, he's, he's just walking down the road, and uh, uh, the other way, apparently, and uh, they turn around and they don't see him anymore. He's probably gone around the corner or something and they, they don't see him. And then I think it's Joseph Smith who identifies this guy says that was Moroni. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just one little last little story. Albert Carrington uh, was sleeping with women while he was serving as a mission president. He was also a member of the Quorum of the 12 and he goes back uh, to essentially face a disciplinary court when he's the gossip gets back to the States that he's doing this. And he tries to convince the Quorum of the 12 that as long as you don't penetrate more than four inches, it's not adultery. Now, that's the kind of nonsense that we have trying to be perpetuated on the saints and its leaders at times is the gullibility and the th- the idea of gullibility that we sometimes try to present. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, no problem. It's a fun one. I, I really tell it in a better way, but I won't do that here. Thank you. I appreciate no it. <laughs> I still can blush, you know. Yeah. Okay, target constituency. If you, th- oh, if you think you can't be conned, Bill... Then you're just the person a con artist wants to meet. Absolutely. If you think you can't be conned, then you are set up to be conned. Doubt everything, right? Be a skeptic. Doubt everything. Absolutely. And so you think, uh, does he think or do people think they can't be conned about Mormonism if they're believers in it? Yeah. Even this guy says, trust but verify in one of the other articles. Yes. And then deep down, sometimes not even fully known to themselves, targets also possess an unmet desire 
that encourages them to believe vanity, pride, or validation, i.e. encourages you to believe because it supports what you already believe. You're being validated in your belief. Yeah. Personal prejudices or chauvinism, longing for financial gain, entertainment, or vicarious thrills. Now, did you want to say anything before we get to this line about um, Arthur Conan Doyle? Just the idea that longing for financial gain, entertainment, uh, vicarious thrills, the financial gain part, like there's this sunken cost fallacy. We we're told in Mormonism that huge blessings are coming, coming that if we're, if we're obedient, if we're righteous and um, we look forward to those. And when someday things start to mount up negatively, we hold on way longer because what if it's true? What if Mormonism's true? And so often just the idea of some blessing that's up ahead, even as the evidence is mounting against your belief, you'll continue to hold it. Uh, Kurt Arman or Arman is saying, dear R Jesus, that may be true. Uh, certainly Martin Harris felt so. There may be others who subscribe to that. I've seen it more as written, dear Jesus, D-E-A-R Jesus or D-E-E-R. Anyway, regardless. Dear Jesus. Going on to Sherlock Holmes, okay? Because this is a great part. And we're just going to spend a couple minutes on this. Even the inventor of Sherlock Holmes, by the way, the greatest fictional detective in the history of at least English literature, the, the author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was tricked by photographs of fairies. Now, a lot of people know this, but I've been surprised when I've been talking about the show that there's still a lot of people who don't know about this, which I think is somewhat of a famous story and should be more widely known, about Sherlock Holmes' author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a brilliant man, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, who's the smartest detective in the world and can solve crimes like nobody's business, right, based upon his methods of deduction, who actually taught those methods of deduction to detectives at... Scotland Yard, and I'm talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, because they were so uh, incredibly uh, effective that they had him teach those to detectives there. And yet he gets taken in by photographs of fairies. Now, I sent these to you. This is, by the way, this is about 1917. It's at the end of uh, during World War One. And there's a couple of girls up in a little village in England called Cottingley. These girls are brilliant, by the way. I mean, this is such a such a ruse. Well, yeah, and I want to tell you the story about these in a second, but these are the photographs of fairies that they produced and which got a lot of people, including Arthur Conan Doyle, to buy into them to think that they were real. And so uh, there's one, right? And yeah. I think that if we look at this with um, from our perspective of 2021, uh, we're probably going to look at that and think, oh, boy, that looks kind of fake. <laughs> it, <laughs> you know it what it I looks mean? Pretty, yeah, it looks pretty two-dimensional. I, I get we're looking at a photograph, um, but... It just looks like a cutout to me. Yeah. And so then uh, the next one, there's five, there's five photographs. Yep. Let me uh, wonder why it's not letting me go. There we go. So let me make this a little bigger. Okay. And here's the second one, the Cottingly fairies. There's the second girl. See, and there's, and there she is posing with a, with a fairy and these fairies would appear to them. And I think that while the fairy appeared to one, the other one's probably taking the picture. Here's another girl. And I can't remember exactly how many there were girls. I think there may have been two, possibly more. And here she's got another fairy appearing over her shoulder. It's still looking kind of fake to me. Yeah, it doesn't look very real. That's for sure. No. And that's the first one. Oh, yeah. So then uh, let me go back here. And I think we got one more, which is. There should uh, be two more. Yeah. yeah. And then the last one is kind of a little different than the others. Mm -hmm. So there's this one. Yeah. Um, And then the final one is a little different from the rest. Yes, and this is very famous. I think this may be the most famous one because we've got all these little fairies dancing. And there's one of the girls, and there's those fairies, and they're dancing. And it's a beautiful picture. And I don't know. I just, I'm not really convinced by that. But a lot of people were, including 
Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, that's the, that's the fifth one right there. Yeah, this was the one I was thinking of because uh, I'm just looking at the the stuff here, and it just the, the translucentness, the two dimensionalness. Yes, um, it just doesn't. It just feels out of place juxtaposed against the grass and flowers. Yes, and now I just want to explain a, a couple things about this. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle doesn't go from writing Sherlock Holmes to believing in these fairies. Okay. He doesn't go from one to the other. What happens is he writes the Sherlock Holmes stories primarily in the late uh, 19th century. And then he goes on in the 20th century. And this, this is like I said, 1917, and he is still alive. And he has segued into a deep belief in spiritualism, which was really, really popular at the time. Uh, in fact, it was so popular that I believe it was Woodrow Wilson's wife who conducted seances in the White House. And people mm. were raising their eyebrows about yeah. it. That much. It's like, the, I mean, this is huge. It was considered to be a viable uh, quasi-religious kind of belief. So he's gone to that and he believes very devoutly in spiritualism. He sees these photographs. He hears about these girls. And it's in that context, see, that he accepts them as authentic and is very excited about them because they confirm his belief that he's already developed in spiritualism. Mm. Um, interesting. It, it is interesting that you have this guy who's made a living out of detective work and that idea. And then, and then he f- kind of falls for this. And so, as you pointed out, when you think you're too smart to be scammed, you often are the perfect guy to be scammed. Exactly. And once again, we're not going to get into this part, but he talks about uh, scams and hoaxes are most prevalent during periods of upheaval and societal change. This is the World War One was incredibly, incredibly traumatic. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people were killed in battle and because of warfare. It was a time when there was a huge looking for some kind of hope, some kind of solace in some kind of belief. And some found it in religion. A lot of people found it in spiritualism. So there is this motivation that's happening that's swelling up into this manifestation of spiritualism. And it, this was the perfect time for this to be believed by a lot of people. Yeah. And just to know, people are asking about the, somebody missed the Albert Carrington story and wanted some source for it. So I just shared, wherever you're watching this, if you just look at the comments, it should be something that came from uh, the Mormon discussion label that now has uh, those stories there for you to read about Albert Carrington. Great. The last thing I want to say about these photographs is that when you know the story behind the photographs, and I have no reason to think that Arthur Conan Doyle didn't know the story behind the photographs. Maybe he didn't, but Uh, It's generally understood because this is the way it happened, is that there's these girls who get pictures of fairies. And they've got parents, of course. There's other adults around. I think there's ministers around. And they ask the girls because they're they're saying they're seeing fairies and they present one picture. They're not they're not all taken on the same day. And they say, Well, can we go into the forest with you so we can see the fairies? And the girls, I'm sure quite demurely and with honesty beaming from their eyes, say, No, you can't go into the woods. To see the fairies, because if you go into the woods, guess what, Bill? Uh, then the fairies won't show up. They won't show up. But you give us the camera, Dad. <laughs> we'll go into the forest, and we'll take some pictures, and we'll bring back the camera, and you can develop the film. And lo and behold, there are the fairies. Now, if we are looking at this from the position of not believing that this is authentic. By the way, later on, the, the girls, or at least one of them, admitted that you know they cut them out and they made up the, the photographs. If we're looking at this from a disbeliever's point of view, then we are probably going to say, that sounds a little bit suspicious that nobody else can go in there to see the fairies except for the girls. Right. And 
here comes the photograph and the evidence once you develop the photograph. We would right. probably look at that as a little bit suspicious. But as a believing Mormon, okay, we are less likely to see as suspicious the idea that Joseph Smith claimed to have gold plates, but you don't get to see them, okay? Yeah. They are covered with uh, a napkin or they're hidden in a log or there's something. And you don't get to see the gold plates. When I'm not aware of any reason that would prohibit anybody from seeing the gold plates as they're being used or transported or as Emma's dusting around them, right? I don't know why, but they cannot see the gold plates. They also don't get to look at the um, uh, the seer stone when right. it's in the hat. And, the, and that's under penalty of destruction yeah. from God. If you look at the seer stone, if you look for things that you ought not, then God's going to destroy you. So there's a big penalty placed upon uh, yeah. looking at the things that you shouldn't look at. And, and I was saying, told this... I was told the same thing about the plates, which is that if somebody looked upon the plates, they would be smitten and essentially destroyed. And and but think about it for a moment. Then at that point, then when Joseph's running through the woods and chasing around trees, and folks are after him, and this is where he, uh, you know, gets his thumb broken on the way back to the home. If he just turned around and showed them the plates, they would have been just you know destroyed right then and there. Um, let him have her. Be like the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, let them have the plates. It would be to their own demise. But we have we hold these two different pieces of a story um, at the same time, even though they contradict each other. That is really, really an excellent point. And so to tie up that that point that I was trying to make is that sorry, no, 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 please. It's it's easy for us to see the suspiciousness of the Cottingham fairy girls. Uh, not allowing people to go into the woods to see what they're up to or how it is they're taking these photographs. Right. Um, but it's more difficult for us to see an identical sort of thing going on with Joseph Smith. Now, of course, as a Mormon, you go to, well, yeah, they were always hid and everything until you got to the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. Yeah. Really quick here. Okay, Bill. Please. Okay. Look, here. I've got a deck of cards with me. Okay. I'm not going to do a card trick, all right? But I'm going to tell you a couple things. First thing is, uh, there are different tricks that you can do with a deck of cards. And some do not require you to prearrange the deck, and some require you to prearrange the deck in some form, all right? If a magician ever says to you, here's a deck of cards, go ahead and shuffle them. The first thing you know is you don't need to shuffle them. Doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter whether (laughs) I shuffle them or not. You can just go past, just get on with the trick. Yeah, you don't don't need to shuffle them. Otherwise, he would not be giving you the opportunity to shuffle them. And now I'm, I'm going to reveal a little bit about some card magic, all right? And this has to do with the fact that uh, when the gold plates were apparently shown uh, to eight individuals at one time, and then uh, there was a spiritual manifestation for three at a different time. Uh, what I can really talk about is probably the one with the eight witnesses. The one with three witnesses may have been a separate kind of thing. But yeah. where it's there, what we have is a, a display of something under extremely controlled circumstances. Yeah. And that is something where a magician is going to allow, if he can, all right, if he can, if he can allow a spectator to examine something, he will allow the spectator to examine something because then that removes from the spectator's mind the idea of, okay, well, then there's a trick here. But if you ever see a magic show or have people going up on stage or whatever, there is an art and it'll depend upon the prop that you show whatever it is that you can show to the spectator, all right, without them finding out what the gimmick is. And the more they can see, then the better you are. But there's a number of ways. First off, I've got a deck of cards here. Now, when you were a kid, did you ever see magic cards advertised on TV? Um, yeah, even like a back of a comic book, or there were certain types of things you could order magic tricks and, and magic cards. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's different kinds of magic decks, as you might imagine, right? They're not all straight. Uh, let me just tell you about a Svengali deck. A lot of people know about a Svengali deck. That's a technical term. It's not actually TV magic cards. But a Svengali deck is a deck that you can show that every card is different, all right? But you cannot let the spectator handle the deck. There's a certain way you can show it. You can basically show, oh, you can basically show it like this. This is not a Svengali deck. Oh, my gosh, there we go right? That's all you can do. And the whole deal is that then you do some magic stuff and then all of a sudden now you show it this way and all the cards have changed and they're all the same card. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the Svengali deck. You've probably seen something like that. <laughs> and you can show them that they're all different, but you can't let them actually handle the deck because if they handle the deck, they're going to see what the trick is. All right. They're going to say, no, they're not all different. Half of them are one card and half of them are, are different cards. So there's different things that you can do. And I'm going to tell you one other last thing, okay? And this is just this idea of this controlled viewing that Joseph Smith arranged for the place. It's not something where, you know, here they are, and anybody can just pick them up and look at them anytime, and they're they're not under the napkin. You know, they're not hidden in the log. They're not available for ordinary, thorough examination, okay? That's what I'm getting at. Right. And this has to do with a card box. I don't know if anybody has a card box, but you used to have a card box and it's a little black thing. Sorry, don't have one with me. It's a little black box. It's the size of a card. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you take, uh, you can do it for different things. The main thing is it has, um, it's a black thing and it has a black flap that's exactly the same size as the box. If you were to put a card into the magic box, right? And then you close it, the flap goes over the card. When you open it up, it appears empty. Mm. So what you can do is you can make a card disappear. You can make a card appear. Or right. you can change one car a card from one card to another if you have a card loaded under the flap before you close it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, the one thing you can't do that's can't do is let the spectator examine the box. Because if they examine right. the box, all they have to do is turn it upside down, the flap falls out, and oh, well, duh, this is how it's done. So you can't let them examine the box. But I will tell you one thing. I had this great, great card box, which I since lost. I was a kid at the time. I was a teenager, right? But the great thing about it is it was made of metal. It wasn't made of plastic. And the flap was made out of metal too. And it was magnetized. Mm. And what that meant was you could do the exact same trick. Boom. Because it's not mag magnetized at the, at the beginning, right? But when it goes over that way, magnetized to the bottom. And what you could do then, people can examine that to their heart's content. And they are not going to figure it out. Because there's right. no way to get anything under that flat. You can't even see it. It's so well designed. It's got like a false bottom to it. Right. Yeah. One thing they can't do is what you have to do in order to get the card back, which is you take a separate magnet, stick it on the back and then pull it up. Mm. Wow. That, yeah. So whatever you're allowed to handle, touch, look at generally isn't going to interrupt the, the magic trick at all. Whatever you're not allowed to play around with generally is where the trick is. And in some cases, the very thing that you're handling has been equipped to fool you as well. Right. And everything he says about being fooled by a hoax is it applies to the witnesses. Yeah. Because, you know, we're not there. We don't see exactly what it is that they're allowed to see or under what circumstances. And I'm just saying that a magician being present could probably see things that maybe eight people who already have a predisposition to believe uh, might not see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing, the other thing. I, OK, I'm sorry. We'll get there. The Kinderhook plates, because he doesn't, doesn't he mention the Kinderhook plate somewhere. Uh, I don't I don't remember that, but I know we were talking about it this morning. OK, here's the deal with the Kinderhook plates, right? Kinderhook plates. I hope everybody knows the story. OK, uh, the Kinderhook plates, uh, they fool Joseph Smith. They fool a lot of people. And um, Joseph Smith apparently begins a translation of it. He gives a thumbnail description of what's contained in them. And then 
what happens is, is that these Kinderg plates, they continue to exist. And decades later, the guy who said he found them, he admits they were hoaxed. I, I made these up in, in my barn and it was just supposed to be fun. He admits that they're a hoax. Okay. Well, at this point in church history, the Mormons have committed themselves to believing that they're real because Joseph Smith believed that they were real. And if he thinks that a hoax is real, then, you know, that's kind of blow him up as a prophet when he says other things are real, right? He can be yeah. fooled yeah. Uh, and even translate something. That's a hoax. So, so guess what happened with the Mormons on mass when Mr. Fugate, the hoaxer, admitted that it was a hoax? Um, they kept believing. They kept believing. They believed that Fugate was a liar, making up that story that it was a hoax in order to make Joseph Smith look bad. But they continued to believe it. And they continued to believe it for about 100 more years that the uh, Kinhook plates were authentic. They were real until they were finally subjected to scientific analysis under yeah. an atomic microscope or something like that. And it was yeah. confirmed that, in fact, yes, they were of modern creation. They were a hoax. And that was like in the 1980s, I think it was. And I had then, read things. I had read things in between when the uh, the, the hoax was uh, occurred and when the church got the plates uh, scientifically examined. And you're 100% right. The literature points to the church maintaining this belief that Joseph Smith had translated these other plates. Right. And it's so again, the- changing something else that's fluid and changing is yeah. our story around the Kinderhook plates. Right. And as soon as that came out in the enzyme, it was proven to be a, a modern creation. All of a sudden, the, the story changed uh, like 180 degrees. Yeah. Every time we get new data, we just make a new story. Right. And the, and the story now is, well, Joseph Smith wasn't fooled. This was a trap for him that he didn't fall into. Except for a sentence or two. Yeah, exactly. And then we blame it on William Clayton, who was a scribe. And who the heck <clears> William Clayton? William Clayton. He's crazy. He'll write down anything and attribute it to Joseph Smith. Right. So that's what that's what the argument then becomes. And I know that there's another argument about it that's out there, and that is by um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, Bradley, Don Bradley. Thank you so much. Sorry, Don. No uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, Don. There's okay. no argument out there regarding it, which we don't have time to get into. But I'm talking about the fact this persistence of belief in something that we already have committed to, and um, even when the the guy who announced it says it was a fake, nope, we're not going to believe you. And finally, only after a hundred more years, and it's proven to be uh, a fake, do we change? Do we not go? Oh, well, if we can continue with our former line of reasoning, then this really impacts Joseph Smith negatively. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to change the narrative now. Yeah, and say yeah. Joseph Smith wasn't fooled by it. No, no. Every time the goalposts get moved, that's how you tell a good hoax. Is the goalposts keep moving? Got to stay in power. So that was everything that I think that I had to say about this. I cut out a little bit. And right now we're at 641. Did you have anything you wanted to say in conclusion before we take questions? No, I have just. Time for the live calls, right? Yay. All right. So somebody informed me that not only is it 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST, it also can be made to spell dirt. So tonight it is four three five two double zero D I R T. Is that true? RFM is dirt also. Um. Well, three four well, seven eight. Does does three four seven eight? Uh. Yeah. The I is the same. Uh. Or R uh, S and T. Looks like it. Dirt. We've got four three five two hundred dirt is our call-in number tonight. So I kind of like fists better. I do. Maybe that's persistence of belief. 
This is only one week only for Dirt. Next week, we return to Fist. Um, but it's the same number. It's the same number. 435-200-3478. So hopefully we'll get a couple calls. Uh, RFM, you won't, you won't be able to talk to the callers. You'll hear them. Um, but we're hoping. We've been talking off the air before we started. I'm, I'm supposed to have gotten a device today, and it didn't arrive. But it should show up tomorrow uh, thanks to a, a listener. I just want to say thanks, by the way. The listener, I won't mention his name. But he reached out to me and said, hey, how about I send you? Um, how about I send you what you're looking for that would help you put this together? And so that's the case. So hopefully next week, I'll actually be able to interact with callers. Maybe it's been a blessing. I don't know. We'll have to see how it goes. All right. So we've got our first call, Nathan. Nathan, you're on Mormonism Live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. Uh, what are you thinking tonight, my friend? Uh, I'm actually having a lot of things on my mind. I'm currently on century duty. So mind of my pauses, I... I've, I was raised in the church from the day I was like actually remembering, but the problem is I kind of grew up in a very tragic way that no one can ever, ever fathom. And it's hard to discuss even to this day, even with my own sister being a therapist. So I have got to a few understandings and trying to do the right things for a lot of uh, people. And I'm actually stirring and shaking for this, but what you guys were talking about, about the paradoidal effect and how we uh, see things in a different way, in different sense. And it got me to understanding a lot of different timelines and what came to pass about our own timeline within the church, within our own country's timeline. Yeah, I've got to a weird understanding because my family is really based from in the military, as well as from the beginning of our church line. It's really weird about my, my family, but we're just now going through the ancestry and we're finding out a lot of things. So my wonder is this, could, could the church be another form of what, like, I don't want to be a conspiracist on this, but could the church be a form of what the government wants a standard of belief? Like I, I don't know if that's a possibility, but I've, I've been, I've been in the security area, and everybody refers to each other as brothers and sisters. That we're, we're like men in arm. We, we respect each other, and if we're, if anything happens, we're there for each other, no matter what our faith is. And like I have, I, I even had a guard a few days ago that he was on his worst luck, and I've, I helped him go through it. So the only way I can really describe it was the my timeline of being in the church. It really helped me out. Like I'm my own best friend. He's even served a uh, mission and the church didn't help him when he returned. He was struggling time and time. And I devote my time to actually help him out to figure out because he and I were in the same situation. We were we were fatherless sons. We have no family to really to look up upon because he grew up in the ghetto and I grew up in very privileged uh, life. But we understand the, the coin of both sides and we're just trying to make do and understand. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let's try to address that off the air with you. OK, I'll, I'll hang up with you here and uh, RFM and yeah. I will address that. Sorry about that. No, no, yeah. no problem. No. Thank you for calling. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers for whosoever sheds his blood this day with me shall be my brother. Yeah, I, I think that there is, I think to what Nathan maybe was getting at, I don't know if, if I'm hitting it on the head or not, but this idea that, you know, 
we're better off if, if the systems are in place and tribes are in place and belief systems are in place, we're all more likely to just go along with the flow. There's not a lot of critical thinking. Um, and so it benefits a society to have religious beliefs and to get people to kind of get in line and follow because that keeps the system going and keeps the peace. If people all start thinking and deconstructing boundaries and rules, then they're more likely to challenge things. Um, and that puts the system into chaos. And, and I think I, I could be wrong, but I think that's maybe where Nathan was going. Yeah. And I don't know that uh, there's any government influence involved, but I think that the church probably independently sees itself as um, uh, making it a priority to obey the laws of the government in which they belong or the countries in which they belong. Um, I think it's beneficial to whatever government happens to be empowered to have Mormons there because of that belief. But I don't know that the, the there's something the government's right. doing in order to get them to do that. Right, right. Absolutely. So anyway, hopefully uh, somebody else, feel free to call. We'd love to take a few more callers. Um, we'll take a few more. It, it is 435-200-DIRT. Uh, and so here we go. Yay. So you'll be screening that call. By the way, that quote I was giving is where Band of Brothers comes from. It's from... Uh, what is it? It's Henry V. I think that's the St. Crispin's Day speech. So something's very funny. Do we have a puppet calling again? What? No. Your voice too. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, this is Suzette uh, on the line. Um, and so Hi. Suzette, you're with uh, Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Hey. And uh, what are your hey. thoughts? Um, I really, really enjoy this episode. Um, my question is sort of about communicating with um, other believing Mormons about this. So everything you said made total sense to me. Like, absolutely. I've done that. And now I'm doing it kind of on the deconstructed side. But obviously, if you try and point this out to people who are deeply believing, they do what we, what we all did, you know, they stay with their beliefs. So is there a way that you can maybe gently sort of show these tactics and how they're working? Or do you just have to leave it alone? That's my question. Okay, I'll hang up with you, Suzette. And we'll address that. Okay. Perfect. Have a beautiful day. So I think I'll tell you my. I'm just going to get another drink, okay? Oh, please. Thank you. My my two cents for listeners is that you would go check out Jonathan Streeter's YouTube page, Thinker of Thoughts, and one of the things that Jonathan does fan fabulously. Um, if you go to Thinker of Thoughts, uh, Thoughts on Things and Stuff is the name of his YouTube channel. Uh, and he goes under the name of Thinker of Thoughts. If if you go check out Jonathan Streeter's uh, uh, Thoughts on Things and Stuff page, he has numerous videos where he talks about these different mechanisms that compel somebody to believe. And he shows it both in the Mormon faith as well as other in other religions. Um, another place I would send people is to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast. Not Cognitive Dissonance but Cognitive Dissidents. Um, that is a, a podcast that I did about 12 or 13 episodes on. And every one of those episodes takes a psychological mechanism, shows examples, usually inside Mormonism, but sometimes outside as well, uh, and shows how those things work. So Thinker of Thoughts, Cognitive Dissidents, those are the two places that I would go to see how you are encouraged to believe within Mormonism in ways that are flat-out manipulation. Yeah, before I get there, I just want to say that there was a comment that someone had made about um, uh, governments in the church using same types of tactics. I think that that is true, and I didn't address that, about uh, identifying other members of the same group as brothers and sisters, and thereby, oh, sorry, thereby sort of incorporating a kind of a, a family 
or enforcing a family unit upon the structure, which is really not a family, but trying to make it like a family. So I think that's a good point that was made there. Um, so uh, Suzette's question, here's my idea. No, there's nothing that you can do to get somebody to move off of the dime if they're not ready to do so themselves. And it's very yeah, difficult to right. say what it is that's going to move somebody off that dime. They have to be prepared. They have to be ready for it. And really, I think there's very little uh, a person can do in order to get them prepared for it. Um, I think that the one thing you can't do is tell them this is the way things are or this is how you should believe. I think the most effective thing, and you've seen me do it tonight, by the way, which is I try not to say this is the way things are. I try and say this is what my experience has been, okay? Because when I say that, then it's generally not threatening to somebody else because I'm just talking about my experience. And also, it's pretty hard to argue with a person when they're recounting their own personal experience. You know, you're going to lose that argument. So uh, it's a safe way generally for the person who's talking uh, and the person who's listening to be able to hear a different point of view. And if they are at all ready to hear anything, then my experience has been there. I'm doing it again. But that's uh, that's the most effective way to go about it. Yeah, I agree with you. There are ways to understand the manipulations that are happening, but until somebody wants to see them, they're just not going to see them. Yes, as my favorite general authority, Paul H. Dunn, used to say, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> uh, plus, you have the backfire effect. So if you just give them a little bit, it's why the CES letter, by the way, is so effective. And, and I think we'll take one more phone call and we'll wait for somebody to call in. Um, eight, well, I'm sorry, 435. We don't have a toll-free number yet, RFM. We're not that big. 435-200-3478. Contributions. Yeah, we have to get those up. Guys, make a donation. Go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, and put some bags and bags of cash in RFM and Bill Reel's pockets. Uh, we're trying to make sure that this goes on for a long, long time. Here, we've got our last call. Let's move on to a phone call, RFM. While you sleep, pal. Our last phone call is Danette. But before we get to Danette, go to mormonismlive.org, hit the donate button, and you know, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, that's not much. But in terms of, you know, a hundred people doing it or or a thousand people doing it, it makes it so that RFM and I can do this for years and years, hopefully. That's the goal. Uh, and be able to have these conversations with you. So please go donate today. Danette, you are on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. Would you please um, uh, share with us some of your thoughts tonight, my friend? Uh, my thoughts are mostly on how it feels like the church, they also control your feelings. Like I was, when I because I'm a uh, lesbian, I came out later in life. Anyways, when I was telling my dad that, he's like, I said, well, when I actually prayed to God, I got a strong feeling that it was okay. And he's like, no, that was Satan. So they always, so if you feel like you have feelings, their feeling, your feelings have to be the same as theirs. And if it's not, then obviously it was Satan. So yeah. I don't know if I'm coming across. Right, no, 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 you absolutely are. They always change. They're always changing, right? So if, if, for instance, we give a blessing and somebody dies, we go, oh, Heavenly Father needed them more on the other side. And if they get better, we say, oh, it's the priesthood power and it's a miraculous blessing. So no matter what you say, it's often twisted in whatever answer they want it to be. Yeah. And, and right. then that, yes. Uh, and can't, uh, like I had an experience once with the Book of Mormon where I, so I, would, I would say it was almost a evil experience with the Book of Mormon. And so I threw it down and never picked it back up again. Yeah. Like gotcha. I can't read the Book of Mormon. But then people would probably tell me a whole bunch of reasons of why it was. Like I guess the church just does not confirm your feelings. If they're not their feelings, then, you know, yeah. they're not the right things. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hang up with you, Danette, but thank you for the okay. phone call. And I think I know who you are, right? Like I know you. Yep. You okay. Know me. Cool. Have a great day, Danette.
Bye-bye. Uh-huh. You know, there's this idea of even like they've lost the light in their eyes, right? I've heard that thing within Mormonism before. Like when somebody's outside the church, you look at them, you're like, hmm, I can see they've lost the light in their eyes. Um, That's such a strange thing that we paint people who have left our religion as being broken and less than. And I think that's what Danette's kind of pointing to. And, And we'll come up with any line of reasoning to make that work. Yeah, as Quinn said in the movie Jaws, he's got black eyes. A doll's eyes. Yes. That light just, it goes right out. Um, So what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, this this happens all the time. My gosh, it's just so, once you see it, it's hard not to see it. And Elder Oaks did this recently on a a face-to-face devotional for youth. And what he had said, by the way, we played it before uh, in past episodes, but um, where he's talking about... um, a young woman came to a young woman came to me and told me that her parents had received a revelation that they didn't have to pay tithing anymore. And she asked me, "What did you think about that, Elder Hoax?" And I said, "My name is not Elder Hoax. The H is merely my middle initial." <laughs> no, he says, um, uh, "Well, I can't say whether they actually received revelation, but if they did." They were getting it from the wrong source. Yeah, all all roads lead to Rome, and any road that doesn't lead to Rome will be reformulated so as to lead to Rome. Right. The idea is that you in this church have the right to receive personal revelation from God as long as it confirms exactly what the leaders tell you that you have to believe. Yeah. Which means you have no right to personal revelation on anything. No, you really don't, because as soon as it contradicts the church, then— you only get revelation so long as it coincides. That's how this works. Right. And then either uh, it's coming from the wrong source. Of course, now Elder Oaks doesn't give us any basis to discern uh, what comes from God versus what comes from the wrong source or right. how it is that he's so dang sure that his revelation isn't coming from the wrong source. Right. But it's because, you know, he's the leader of the church and it's good to be the king. Well, there we are. Another episode of Mormonism Live. Uh, I would, I, again, the links are at the beginning for the articles that we were pulling from, plus one I think we didn't use tonight. I would go read those. I think you'll see a lot more um, ideas and concepts in there that seem to, could be used easily to prove Mormonism is a hoax. Uh, go check those out. Check out the website, mormonismlive.org. And uh, join our Facebook group. I think we're up to 275, 280 people in the group. Great. Uh, great. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely really good. So um, people are there and they're starting to put their own post in, which we want you to do. We want you to start sharing your own post, ask questions, make comments. Um, we want to kind of build a community there for Mormonism Live. Uh, but anything else from you, RFM? I'm, I think I, I think we've covered that and, and I'm pretty happy with the episode. No, I, I think it was great. We'll ha- we had a great time and I will be having a very, very... Long talk with you, Mr. Real. After the show is over. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in big trouble, everybody. Um, but before we take off, don't again, don't forget, don't forget what President Packer said. Mormonism live. Better than touching your own little factory.